Well, this morning we are going to look at perhaps the single most misunderstood verse, and I would even add most misapplied verse in all of Scripture. Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Now, in truth, this misapplied verse has become really the anthem of our modern culture. Whereas postmodernism has left us without any semblance of public truth, and they would, their anthem is essentially this, your truth is not necessarily my truth. As if the absence of truth then is the truth. And if that's the case, then all things are permissible, everything is to be accepted, and nothing can be said to the contrary. If that is true, that there is no truth, then marriage is flexible, gender is fluid, abortion is health care, sin is virtue, and righteousness is bigotry. Yet God calls the church to speak. We are the conscience of any and every nation. However, when Christians oppose sin and wickedness today, culture usually retaliates with this proof text. Their verse is Matthew 7.1. Judge not. Unbelievers may not know any other Bible verse at all, but they know this one, or they think they do. Because when this is trotted out, they believe that it functions as sort of a trump card for us. That once they fire back with, well, the Bible says not to judge, that somehow our conscience will be captive and the believer is going to have no choice but to concede defeat. Because we don't want to be perceived as disobeying the Bible, so therefore we aren't to judge. And we hold the position that we must not judge anyone at all, ever. But is that really what Jesus is teaching? I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 to look at this together. We really enter into the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for quite a while, working verse by verse. We'll be here for certainly a few more weeks. But we're closing in on Jesus' dramatic conclusion to this sermon that began in chapter 5. Chapter 7 introduces us to the issue of judgmentalism and the Christian. Again, his audience is believers, and so therefore he commands Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, in analyzing these verses, I was consulting several scholars this week, as I normally do. I want to get the sort of the panoply of what's being said about the verse. I don't want to miss what church history has always said, what scholars have interpreted to be. One of them was very helpful this week. D.A. Carson highlights that there are various components to this passage. He notes here in the first verse, verse 1, really this is the principle, and I would concur. This is the principle of the entire passage. And then really verse 2 is the theological justification. Verses 3 through 5 then functions as an example. And then we're going to look at verse 6 toward the end, and we're going to see it's a little bit different there. But first I want to look at the principle. What is the principle behind all of this? Because again, you hear culture's anthem about not judging. 
What is the big principle? Look again at verse 1. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, many of us have in our minds, no matter what your tradition is, sort of firmly etched into our minds the old King James Version, and we hear it in the refrain in our heads, Judge not lest ye be judged. But the principle is still there. Do not judge or judge not. That is the overarching principle. But the Greek word here is krino, judgment. It can be used in some cases to refer to a, a general judicious judgment. So judgment in the, in the context of a court. So you go to court, you're guilty of a crime, and the judge renders a, a verdict, a judgment against you. Or it can also be used more universally to refer to passing judgment on other people, making sort of discretion and, and using judgment in your, own, uh, in your own mind. We're immediately faced with a, a biblical and a logical problem when we consider this verse. Is Jesus really saying that we are never to render a judgment about anyone ever? Is that what he's saying? Well, a cursory look at Scripture reveals that that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Quite the contrary, in fact. But let's, let's back up a bit, though. What does it mean to render a personal judgment? Essentially, when you're doing so, you're evaluating something in light of true and righteous standards. The Oxford Dictionary notes that it's the ability to make considered decisions or come to a sensible conclusion. To be clear, we all do this. Every single one of us does this, renders judgments. If we didn't do this, in fact, we would not be able to live our lives with any semblance of order or productivity. You and I have to make judgments all the time. Furthermore, even within the church, we would be overwhelmed with error within inside of a week if we didn't discern and judge rightly. Error would just fly in through the doors and we would just be taken captive. And so, Scripture exhorts believers to render judgments. Just a couple of examples. When the Apostle Paul hears about this man in the Corinthian church who is having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5, he tells the church, I have already judged him who has committed this. And then he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, again, modern culture would, would say that our, our opponents would say, well, love is love. What does it matter? You have no right to judge that couple, that, that relationship. You have no business saying what they can and cannot do. That's not your business. Paul seems to think it is his business when it comes to the church. Paul knew this is a violation of the law of God, and if a strict judgment was not rendered in the eyes of the church, then the evil of this sin would spread even further. You see how the, it's like ripples in a pond. It just keeps on going if you don't stop it. And so he's judging sinfulness, sinfulness. Galatians 1, 8, and 9, very different situation. Paul renders a judgment against all who would preach a false gospel. A false gospel. This requires Paul then to examine what is being said, what is being taught, the message, and weigh that content against the content of the biblical gospel, against the scriptures. And once it's been determined that this person is declaring to them a false gospel, Paul pronounces a judgment, and he actually pronounces a curse. He says, I don't even care, I don't care if even I do this, or an angel from heaven, doesn't make a difference, whoever comes to you with a false gospel, a different gospel, they are accursed. He says it with the full weight of heaven behind him. Let them be accursed, let them be anathema. 
However, we're told that in evangelism, that, or excuse me, in evangelicalism, that we're, we're in a big tent. And there's lots of room for diverse interpretations. I hear this all the time. Furthermore, they tell us that judging other believers is unloving. You're not allowed to judge another Christian. You can't do that. You would not be loving. But 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Why? He says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Be very careful. In other words, you have to judge everything against sound doctrine. You take the word of God and you have to judge every single thing you see outside the church and inside the church against the authority of Scripture. And if something doesn't gel, you have to act accordingly. Furthermore, Romans 16, 17 tells the brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. The original Greek, keep your eye on, really means to mark as if you're pointing a a target, like you're aiming a target right on the back of a person. That's the idea. Keep your eye, mark the man who's doing this. In other words, mark those who are heretics and troublemakers and avoid them. Avoid them, he says. This requires, my friends, judgment. You have to render judgment in your mind as to whether something is true or false. We see that Paul does this in Philippians 3.2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He judges false disciples who are sitting in the bounds of the assembly. And he calls them dogs. That's not very loving, Paul. Calling them dogs. But what is he What is he doing? He's rendering a judgment and he's warning the church to judge righteously. Elsewhere, John chapter 7, Jesus speaks to this. After seeing Jesus perform miracles, the Pharisees wrongly accuse him of being demonic. And he fires back at them and he makes his case that he is within his authority to heal a person on the Sabbath. He says elsewhere, the Sabbath is not made for man. Or, excuse me, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. He says in verse 24, do not judge according to appearances, he says, but judge with righteous judgment. He doesn't say never judge at all. He says instead, judge righteously. Judge righteously. And that is the principle, my friends. In Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. There's a consequence to rendering judgment. There's a consequence to it. He says you too will inevitably be judged. Well, how so? How so? Look at verse 2. He says, For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Here we see the theological justification. Verse 2 helps us clarify that this is not just simply about rendering a judgment at all, it's about rendering a righteous judgment. It's not no judgment, it's righteous judgment. This is an issue of not being uh, judging righteously. This is really an issue of being judgmental. And, and we know the difference between those two, judging righteously and being judgmental. Judgmentalism is the persistent fault-finding. It is unrelenting and unforgiving scrutiny. When you have it out for a person to judge them and be critical of them all the time with no reprieve, that's judgmentalism. It's loveless, it's graceless, it's merciless, and it suffocates. That's what judgmentalism does. 
But verses 1 and 2, they are a foil to judgmentalism. He says, if you judge other people, be careful because you're going to be judged yourself. And the metric comes, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. This is the the principle of lex talionis. This is the, the law of retaliation or an eye for an eye. Whatever you do to a person will be done back to you. That's the principle here. If you judge righteously, if you survey and assess and, you, and you're fair and you're charitable, that'll be measured back to you in the same way. But if you're unjust, if you're critical, then you'll be judged unjustly and critically as well. Jesus says something similar in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. He says, pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. He says, but for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And again, I think the principle is clear here. He is not saying that we are never to judge. He's saying that we ought to judge righteously in a godly way. Because if you are a judgmental person, if you're a critical person, a fault-finding person, an exacting person, a harsh person, a person without grace and mercy, then be assured that will also be measured back to you in the same way. Be very careful. It's easy to look around and point out fault with other people. But what happens when that comes back to you? It always perplexes me when I see a critical person who's always judging other people finally get pushed back and act like, I don't know what I did wrong. Ever see that? Well, I don't know what I did. And you look at them and you're saying, well... You're kind of getting what you, what you deserve here. If you're judging other people, be warned, beloved, because you will be judged in return. Again, if you are judgmental, critical, contentious, unloving, graceless, if you're exacting toward other people, that is the way Scripture says you will also be treated. But then Jesus moves here to give an example of this. He wants to flesh this out. He doesn't just make a comment and then just keep on moving. He helps us through. And I really believe that this example helps us quite a bit. He says, if there is such a strict warning against criticism, who is allowed to judge them? Because you read verses 1 and 2 and you say, well, I I don't know who can judge then, right? Can anybody judge? Look at verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Behold, my friends, the speck log, the speck log analogy. Again, oftentimes misunderstood, but I want to look at this together. The picture here is meant to be a colorful hyperbole. And we see why. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. You're talking about a person who has a a speck in another person's eye, and yet they have themselves a log in their own eye. The word that is used here, karphos in the Greek, refers to a speck of sawdust. So it's as if you're looking at someone else and you're talking to them, and you see this little tiny speck of, of sawdust in the corner of their eye. You know, when you're talking to someone, you see like a piece of food in their teeth or something in their eye. It just drives you crazy, doesn't it? And you almost can't really look, but that's the idea. You're, you're bothered by something that you see in somebody else, and it's just driving you crazy. A little tiny speck in their eye. 
The person in question notices this fleck and intends to point it out. Has every intention to say, you got something in your eye there. But then behold, he does not notice the dokos in his own eye. The word here in the Greek is plank or log. The image here that Jesus is using, again, it's hyperbole. The imagery is of a person who has a full-length two-by-four coming out of their own eye, who thinks that they have the business in pointing out a speck of sawdust in their brother's eye. You see how drastic this is? But the application is very clear. And what does this represent to us? The speck here would represent some kind of fault or sin that exists in someone else that needs to be removed. Obviously, if a person has a speck in their eye, they have to get that out, don't they? A sliver, a little tiny sliver in your hand, it drives you crazy. You've got to get it out. So the application, the implication, is that there is something wrong with somebody else. However, the log here, the two-by-four, the plank in your own eye, equates to some similar sin that, in fact, dominates your whole life. It would be really foolish for a person to walk around pointing out sawdust specks in other people's eye when they're dragging this plank in their own eye behind them, right? I mean, the, the hyperbole is just crazy, isn't it? That's the point. That's why Jesus is such an effective teacher, because he gets their attention. This is absolute foolishness. Why in the world would a person with a plank in their eye point out a speck in other people's eye? We do it all the time, don't we? We do this all the time. What is the lesson to be learned here? The lesson is this. If you're guilty of a sin in your own life, you're the last person to be giving advice or pointing out sin, that very same sin, in someone else's life. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. He goes after the self-righteous person, the moralistic person. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And then he reasons this way. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, O person, O beloved, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think that pointing out this sin in someone else's life, if you're guilty of the same thing, you're going to do them a favor and not condemn yourself? In fact, I would even argue further that if you're going to go around and point out that sin of someone else's life and you're guilty of the same, this hypocrisy, God will be stricter on you because you see it. It'd be one thing if you didn't see your own sin and you didn't understand what was going on, but if, if you see it and it's as clear as day and you're going to point out the sin in someone else's life, you're a hypocrite, Jesus says. The problem is with the believer who lacks self-awareness enough to deal with the sin in their own life first before trying to correct every single other person around them. And Jesus calls it out, verse 5 again. He says, you hypocrite, you hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. And that's just how we see it too. It would be like a person who lives at the bar, trying to run an intervention for an alcoholic friend. You wouldn't accept that, would you? Your person comes to you and says, oh, I think you have a problem with alcohol. I I saw you at the bar yesterday, and the day before, and the day before that. 
You're the last person in the world who should be telling me about my problem. Even though there could be some validity to the judgment, they have no testimony anymore, do they? That's the danger. You've got no business pointing out someone else's sin while your sin still remains. It's hypocritical. Again, does this mean that nobody can judge at all? That no judgment can be rendered? That doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Jesus gives a procedure for being able to address the sin in other people. He says, first, take out the log from your own eye. Examine yourself first. Deal with your sin first. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Be restored. Get rid of it. Root it out. He says, and then, then you're going to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Having dealt with your own sin, it'll allow you to help other people. Then you can actually go to them with good credibility and say, Brother, sister, I've seen this sin in you, and the reason I've seen it in you is because I've had it in myself. I have struggled with that sin for a long time, and by God's grace, I've repented, I've turned, I've rooted it out, it's gone. And now that I've seen how detrimental this is to my own life, I see this in you, and I'm concerned for you, and I want to help you. They'll receive that versus you coming, you get the sin problem. Are you kidding me? This is your biggest problem. You have no business coming to me with this. There's a huge difference here. Jesus says, first, deal with your own sin, and then you can help other people deal with their sin. That's the essence of Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. He says, if you're spiritual, if you've dealt with this, if you've actually matured, then you can come alongside someone else and help them gently, in a spirit of gentleness. He says, but be careful. Be careful if you do this, because it's real easy to come in on, your, on a white horse and say, well, I'm here to help you with your sin problem today. And he warns, he says, be careful, because if you do that, if you think you're the sin police, watch out, because you'll be tempted too. Well, how am I going to be tempted? Because as soon as you see it in them, you're going to say, well, I think I'm all set. And you need to go run right into it yourself. There's a danger in calling out this kind of thing with other people. You've got to be really careful and come to them in gentleness and humility with a godly heart. This is a call for gracious, sound judgment. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. If we have judged ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. And so therefore, my friends, judge not does not mean never judge. Rather, in the context, it means judge righteously. And then we come to verse 6. Verse 6. Now, admittedly, we oftentimes don't know what to do with this verse. And even when I began prep, I've read this, I don't know, probably a hundred times before in my lifetime, and always kind of stumble over verse 6 and think to myself, where does this fit in? Even if you look at some study Bibles, I know that in my study Bible, it's got its own heading. It's like it's his own verse, and it gets kind of excerpted out of the rest of the passage. Did Jesus just mean for this to be a passing comment before he gets to the next thing? I don't believe so. If verses 1 through 5 are a warning against judgmentalism, what is verse 6? Look at verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, 
And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so what is this? I believe, and several other scholars believe, that if verses 1 through 5 were a warning against being judgmental, verse 6 is a warning against exercising poor judgment. It's the other side of the coin. Carson calls this the danger of being undiscerning. Now, admittedly, parts of this verse are curious. Some of this isn't very clear. But let's start with what is clear. In the ancient world, dogs and pigs, so if you were to call someone a dog or a pig, and we heard that Paul called someone a dog earlier, but pigs and dogs are regarded in the ancient world as undomesticated, unclean animals. Dogs back in this ancient world are not like dogs today. Today we have dogs in our homes, and they're domesticated, and they're lovely, and you know, we have them as pets. But in, in Jesus' day, dogs were not pets. They were scoundrels and scavengers who rubbished through the trash and all kinds of other things. And so dogs and pigs represented wild, savage beasts. And so to be called a dog, to be called a pig, was insulting. Insulting. In several places in Scripture, most famously with Jezebel in 2 Kings 9, when a person is eaten by pigs, that's viewed as a judgment of God, and that's what happens to her. She falls out of the window and lands and dies and she's eaten. It's a terrible thing, but it's a curse. It's a judgment. So there is certainly on some level a literal meaning here. You wouldn't take a whole bag full of pearls and give it to swine to eat. You wouldn't take a holy thing. You wouldn't take your Bible. You wouldn't take the the communion elements and go give it to your dog to lap up. So there's certainly a, a literal sense of this, but there's deeper meaning also. What does Jesus say, or what does he mean by do not give what is holy to dogs? Now, these holy things, there's some discussion about what that is. What does it mean to not give holy things to dogs? In the Didache, which is the early church manual, if you've never read the Didache, it's actually quite a helpful and fascinating little book, but the Didache applies this verse to mean not giving the communion elements, bread and wine, to an unbaptized Person, It's not giving them something that is meant for believers. But again, there is some mystery. It's not hard to see then that giving what is holy to dogs and giving pearls to swine, they're two parallel sentiments. It's illustrating the same truth. But again, what are these pearls? What are these holy things? That's what's in question. That's the challenging part. Scholars generally agree that this pertains to what is precious and holy to God. Well, that certainly includes the gospel. It includes sound doctrine, the body of teaching that we have. It would include the ordinances. It would even include Christian piety on some level. Now, obviously, we know from the rest of Scripture, this does not mean that we should withhold the gospel from unbelievers. Otherwise, how would anybody get saved? So he's not saying don't give the gospel out, but there does seem to be some nuance here. In the gospels, Jesus preaches the kingdom and offers the gospel itself without, uh, without restraint to pretty much anybody in earshot. He went around to all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. However, though, there are places we see him actually withhold certain teaching from people. If you notice, he does this quite a bit. In Matthew 11.25, he says, to, he's praying to the Father, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. 
The most brilliant minds in the world can't grasp even the most basic Christian doctrine because God has hidden it. Christian doctrine is only understandable to those who've been born again by the Spirit. When when you become a Christian, God changes something inside of you. He gives you of His Spirit. He regenerates you and He puts Himself into you. His Spirit, the Spirit of God, then comes into us and dwells us and begins to turn the lights on in our mind and we can see things clearly spiritually. That's the process of illumination. In fact, that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the wise and to the prideful outside of Christ, the gospel then is foolishness. You go walk up to a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who has no interest in the things of God at all, and you tell them about Jesus and about dying for sins and paying for it on the cross and rising again the third day, they think you're insane. They look at you like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you, you seem to be like a thinking person, why would you believe that? Because God has blinded their hearts. They scoff at it. Knowing this, then, Jesus intentionally withholds certain aspects of his teaching from the unbelieving and the spiritually immature. In Matthew 13, the disciples specifically ask him, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? Ever wonder about that? Lord, why why don't you just come out and say what you mean? Why do you have to speak in parables? He responds to them in verse 11. He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, this is not to create some sort of Christian elitism. Far from it. But it is to safeguard God's truth from being blasphemed among those who hate him. That's the purpose of it. I was reminded of an example. In 1979, a Hollywood movie was released. The star of the movie was George C. Scott. So it's a prominent film that was back in the 70s. And it features a scene in this movie. I haven't seen the whole movie. I've only seen this one scene. Between this character and another person, another actor. And they have this discussion in the airport. And for some reason, this character starts talking about the doctrines of grace, the Reformed understanding of predestination and so on and so forth. And he lays out the whole thing, and it's actually pretty accurate. I didn't find anything wrong with how it's actually laid out. But the the context of it is that this doctrine of predestination is laid out, and the character that he's talking to then turns around and curses in disgust. Vile curse word. And sort of renders this vile judgment against the doctrine. And then the scene moves on. The character kind of chuckles to himself and they move on. The whole scene is really nauseating, but that's Hollywood for you. But this is an example of what we're talking about. Taking something that is precious and holy, the doctrine of God's redeeming love, His redeeming sinners and calling them to Himself. The doctrine by which all of us, if you're in Christ, are partakers in. How God has reached across time, grabbed us, chosen us out of the world, revived us from dead things, and made us into living creatures, that's our beloved doctrine. In Ephesians chapter 1, the doctrine of of predestination, of election, is given as a comfort to those who are concerned about whether or not we have new life in Christ. So the very thing that is meant to be a comfort to believers was trampled on by a dog in a Hollywood movie. Scripture warns against this. Warns against this. Again, the Lord says, do not give what is holy to dogs. 
Do not throw your pearls before a swine, or they will, he warns, trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. There is a certain wisdom here of using discretion with what and how much you tell people. When you're talking to someone who doesn't know the Lord, I mean, I would really strongly discourage sitting down with your unbelieving, your atheist friends, and walking through every single point of Christian doctrine. Because not only are they not going to understand, but they're going to be incredibly critical, and they're they're just going to destroy it in front of you. They're going to tear you to pieces. Well, no, I mean, I I know sin sounds like it's this, but it's actually this, and well, then we're going to get into the noetic effects of the fall, and then we're talking about predestination. My goodness. What they need to hear is the gospel. That they've sinned against God, need to be reconciled to Him, and need to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Now, you can explain the gospel, that's fine, but don't give them the sacred things of the faith until they come to know Christ. I hear people say this all the time. They tell me, I keep on sharing the gospel with my friend over and over and over again, and all they, get to, all they do is just get angrier and angrier and angrier. They don't even want to see me anymore. What do I do? Well, at a certain point, it's wise then to stop giving them God's holy things. That doesn't mean that you're withholding the gospel. It doesn't mean that you're not evangelizing. But you have to be willing to acknowledge at a certain point when God may be closing the door and darkening their understanding. Even Proverbs speaks to this. Do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs 9, 8. Again, it's calling for sound judgment. Just be careful who you talk to. If you're trying to witness to a person who's just beating you over the head with arguments and screaming in your face and talking you down, at a certain point, after you've done your job, you have to go on to the next person. I see videos, evangelistic videos, all the time of street preachers, and they're, they're screaming, and they're yelling, and they're going back and forth, and, they're, and it's like at a certain point, my friends, you've been persecuted for the faith, take your lumps, you fill up the afflictions that are lacking in Christ, move on to the next person. Be careful wasting your time with scoffers. Paul says this in Titus 3.10, reject a factious man after how many times? He says a first and second warning. A first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul says, look, after two times of this, my friends, just move on. Move on. It doesn't mean you never come back to them. There might be a time where things change. Maybe they've repented. Maybe they want to talk to you again, and that's fine. But at a certain point, you're just kicking against the goads. And you can't win. And there's other people that God is touching, that maybe you need to reach those people as well. Be cautious, be careful, be discerning. That's the concept. Be discerning. Cut your losses at a certain point and move on. Judge righteously. Be wise, be shrewd. Think about who you're talking to in the moment. And we are to exercise sound judgment. When something is good and right and true then we applaud and we praise God for that. That's truth in all places. Whenever you find something that is true, rejoice in the truth. But when something is evil, false, twisted, we stand up and we speak the truth of God in all wisdom. Again, we are, my friends, the conscience of this and every nation. After all, we have a saving gospel. 
We have a gospel that saves and redeems. And how does God do this? How does God redeem? Well, He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. And those who come, they see their need for a Savior. They recognize their sinfulness. And they repent and they turn. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus bears the weight of that sin on the cross. And when that sin is nailed to Him, it dies with Him. And is buried in the ground. And then He rises the third day. And when He rises the third day, He has with Him eternal life. And those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Him have eternal life in Him. If you are in Christ, my friends, He is in you and He has saved you. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, be very afraid. Worry for your life. Worry for your future. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though none of us have deserved to understand and to believe the gospel, Father, I have done nothing. I have merited nothing in my lifetime that deems me worthy of salvation. And none of us do, Lord. The Bible tells us there is not one that is righteous, not even one. And so, God, the fact that you even save one person is an incredible kindness. The fact that you would save thousands and tens of thousands and millions even is an immeasurable grace. And God, you redeem and you give us new hearts and new minds to understand. And you charge us with the task of judging things righteously. But God, I I ask you, as we go about our business as believers, making righteous judgments, being discerning, trying to evaluate every situation, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us clarity of thought, But Lord, I also pray that as we interact with one another, that you would help us to be gracious and discerning. And Lord, I pray, I know that every single one of us, in some way, with something, has a huge log protruding out of our eye. And it's easy for us, with the other good eye, to to notice a speck in our brother's eye. But God, I pray that you would do a cardiatric surgery and examine our hearts, Lord, and help us to see our own sins in light of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to repent of those things, turn from them, remove them, so that we can see clearly to help a brother in need of repentance. Lord, this is challenging work. I'm amazed, Father, that every single week we come back to this text and it is even a greater challenge for us. As if last week's challenge is not enough, every single week the challenge is greater. But God, we know that we can't do this in our own strength. We're reliant on you and your grace to help us. And so I pray, Lord. And Father, as we turn to your table, I pray, as we consider what is holy, that we would examine our own hearts right now. And be able to determine if we know you or not. And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that they would see their need 
for salvation to turn from their sins and trust in you for life and salvation and trust in you alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.